Hey folks, Libba here. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about our upcoming third annual 24-hour telethon on December 2nd. We're providing 24 hours of fun and fascinating history programs, trivia games, raffles, and more to raise donations for our children's reading program, Gainesville Reads. Gainesville Reads provides free one-on-one tutoring to local children who struggle with reading. Since 2020, we've supported over 60 local kids with tutoring and literacy skills, and during the telethon, you'll get to hear from our wonderful tutors, parents, and staff about what this program has meant for students. Please check out our podcast description for a link to learn more. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Donna Cassidy, Professor of Art and American and New England Studies at the University of Southern Maine. This interview was conducted by our wonderful research intern, Kate Chenault, who chose to research the portrayal of women in Western art as part of her internship. Here's Kate's interview with Dr. Cassidy. So the first question I want to talk about is how much about a culture is it possible to learn from the art it produces? Well, I think there are so many different ways of thinking about art's relationship to culture. And in my teaching, I often talked with students about two different ways of thinking about that relationship, right? One is the idea that art can reflect culture so that there are things happening in the culture that artists and art simply kind of embodied, right? A a really good example of that is probably thinking back to the Middle Ages, right? When the Roman Catholic Church in Europe was a very dominant force, right? They And they had a lot of money. And so the art of that period very much reflects that, right? So you have a lot of religious art that's being being commissioned by the church. So there's that reflective idea that that art kind of reflects these dominant cultural ideas that exist, right? Even in the 20th century, we can think about the way that, you know, individualism of free expression was something in general valued in the culture. And that became an important component in modern art, that modern, that art should be about individual expression. And that's a very 20th century idea and reflects those, kind of reflects those ideas in the culture. At the same time, art can also shape the culture, right? It can also change that culture in different ways. So, you know, artists might critique the culture. It can certainly shape how we think about ourselves we think about race, ideas about gender. So, you know, if, for example, you see stereotypes of race that are being reproduced over and over and over again in art, those ideas seem like they're natural, that nobody criticizes them, and then they become accepted in the culture. For example, in the 19th century in the United States, there were lots of, you know, racist images of African Americans, mm-hmm. right? De- you know, derogatory, um, you know, treating African Americans in kind of animalistic ways, for example, as being passive and lazy. These stereotypes were so repeated so often, right, that people that observed those paintings and prints accepted them as real, right? Accepted mm-hmm. them. As, as a reflection of a reality. So 
we can, I mean, we can talk about that same idea in relation to gender, you know, that stereotypes about women, for example, that just are repeated so often that we accept them as being real. So that's a way in which art can really kind of shape culture and shape our ideas within the culture. And, you know, a, a more dramatic example of that are kind of overt pieces of political propaganda. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think I think sometimes, you know, those images of women as as passive, as connected to the domestic sphere. I mean, those were not necessarily intentionally meant to be derogatory, right? But they had that effect. But then you have, you know, art like the art that was produced under the Nazis in Germany mm-hmm. in the 1930s. And there was a very explicit agenda on the part of the government to hire artists that were going to promote certain ideas to advance, right, Nazi ideology mm-hmm. and Nazi politics. So so that's another, I think, really dramatic way that art right. can influence culture. So there's this, you know, it reflects ideas in the culture, it can shape the ideas in the culture. And, you know, those are kind of general ways that I think can be helpful to think about that relationship of art and culture. So with the idea that that art can sometimes shape culture, how do you think 19th and 20th century art has shaped our perception of women now in the 21st century? Yeah, I think that when you look back at art of the 19th and 20th century, you can see certain socially, commonly held social ideas about gender being replicated and reiterated in the art. And you know, two, maybe two major ideas about gender and about women in particular, the idea that women were passive, that women were connected to the domestic sphere, right? Women in the home, the idea that that was women's sphere. And we can see that replicated in so many artists' work of especially the 19th century, but even into the the 20th century. Some of the more, I would say, even, you know, popular art movements like Impressionism, right? When you look at a lot of the works of the Impressionist artists, you see women being depicted in in the home, right? Mm -hmm. In roles of being mothers, right? And I mean, this like Mary Cassatt is a great example of that. And leading Impressionist artists like Claude Monet or Auguste Renoir, they really replicated this idea. And we can see it in kind of popular academic artists of the time in both the United States and in Europe. There was a, a group of very popular painters in Boston, Massachusetts at the turn mm-hmm. of the century. They were called the Boston School. And they primarily depicted women in the interior. These idealized images of women happily <laughs> in their homes, you know, crocheting or looking right. at luxurious art books. And so, you know, you can again, these ideas that, you know, that this was the the idea that this is women's role, these were women's mm-hmm. roles, is really in, reinforced in the art of that time period. And we can see that, I think, having a longer term uh, influence on 
the way we see women even to this day. And another, I think, important subject matter for 19th and particularly early 20th century artists was the subject matter of women as sexual objects, right? And this was particularly seen in images of the female nude and particularly the female reclining nude. So the kind of sexualized female bodies that are just, you know, available for a viewer's gaze, but and largely male viewers' gazes, right? In in that time, kind of reinforced this idea of women, women's sexual identity and sexuality being there for, for men. And and again, I think those that kind of imagery has a spillover even into our own time. And it's not, of course, exclusively that these stereotypes of women were being represented in just the art of the time. These were images of women that were also being replicated in the culture, right? So, right. you know, popular literature, popular prints, later in the 20th century, certainly in television and film. So, I mean, this is where you can kind of see, again, going back to that idea of how art is connected to culture, these images of women in as passive as as sexual objects in art kind of intersect with those similar images in the culture to create these stereotypes that have a long lasting effect. Earlier, you mentioned that sometimes art simply reflects the culture rather than deliberately shaping it. One idea that's been suggested with art and with other forms of media is the idea of the male gaze. Do you think that the male gaze is noticeable in historical depictions of women? In short, yes. <laughs> I, think, I think that, you know, this is an idea of the male gaze that really emerged from film studies and um, film theory in, the, I think it was the 19, uh, 1980s. And it's the idea that men possess the power of the gaze. They are the ones that look. They are the kind of, you might say, the kind of primary audience for film for works of art. And I mean, I, that certainly holds true for a good part of, of Western art. And certainly when you look at film and the idea of the male gaze as it emerged from film theory, the film critic, Laura Mulvey, who really promoted and conceived of this idea, she was looking at the films of Alfred Hitchcock, right? So it's, mm -hmm. you know, Hitchcock as that male author, that male you know, creative film artist who's really creating films that deal with the female object, a sexual object, through his own gaze, but also assuming that the major, that the viewer is going to identify with that male viewer, right? And if we look at or translate this into visual arts, uh, art historians have really looked at the way we see this dynamic, particularly in the representation of the female body, the female nude, in the visual arts and in the history of the visual arts. Although this is not necessarily exclusive to that subject, the idea that, you know, it is primarily a male viewer who is looking at the female body. I mean, this has certainly been critiqued um, in Mm -hmm. Recent studies that have looked more at, you know, a kind of homosexual or transsexual identity and how that complicates this whole idea of, of the male gaze. 
But we can certainly see that dynamic represented, again, primarily in the subject of the female nude, the reclining female nude. And I think the other thing to, I guess, that gives credence to this idea of the male gaze and the argument behind it is that it somewhat replicates a social power dynamics, that that men are often in positions of power over women's bodies. And then, of course, you know, we can see how that's continuing to play out in our own politics, right, of the early part of the 21st century. But looking back at subjects like the reclining nude, even as far back as the Renaissance period, right, in the, mm-hmm. in the 16th century, you have artists like Titian um, painting his very famous painting called The Venus of Urbino. This reclining female nude, very coyly addressing the audience. She's very sensual. She's very, you know, physically appealing. And this sensuality is, you know, is often, art historians have often said, well, this is, she's an idealized Venus figure and has little to do with, you know, real life social dynamics or sexuality. But I think that's a very, very much a misplaced argument. These are female figures that indeed are very sensual. And the subject Mm -hmm. of female reclining nude became extremely popular in the 19th century in the work, particularly the work of, of French artists of that time. And you had artists like the French neoclassical academic artist Ong painting reclining female nudes um, surrounded by very exotic objects, these odalisque figures that that he painted to suggest the association of these female nudes with the Mideast, with a kind of oriental culture to make them more exotic. Um, So, you know, that sense of um, the female body and female identity being subject to the gaze of male artists is, I think, an important part of Western art in the modern in the modern period. And I think it's still very much playing out in different ways, the art and culture of our of our own time. What would you say are some of the similarities between how men portray women and how women portray themselves? And what are the differences? Well, you could take a whole course with me for me to answer that question. <laughs> but in, in some, I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to say that not all female artists are really interested in distinguishing themselves from what male artists were doing. And this is especially true historically. So when you look at the 18th or 19th century in terms of the visual arts, you see a lot of female artists who are working who want to become successful artists. And so they're not necessarily wanting to be revolutionaries in terms of, you know, how they're painting or the subjects that they're painting. They really want to be successful. So they work within the artistic frameworks of the day. So, you know, male and female artists are often trained in the same way. So they're learning um, how to draw the figure, how to make landscapes, or they accept or come to learn what are acceptable subjects for a particular time period, right? So 
female artists are not always wanting to become revolutionary. So they sometimes will paint in very similar ways to their male counterparts at the time. And we, you can see that certainly among the Impressionist painters of the 19th century. Mary Cassatt paints in very similar ways to Edgar Degas, who was her friend, who was also part of the Impressionist, the Impressionist art movement. But sometimes, you know, they, they really had to negotiate right? A space where they were, you know, working within expectations, gendered expectations of the time, but also defining themselves as professional artists. Because for, you know, for many, many years, it was not even accepted for women to be artists, right? That Mm -hmm. being a professional artist meant becoming part, not of the domestic world, right? But of the public sphere, of a public world, a civic world, a world of professional work, right, that so many women of the middle and upper classes were excluded from. So, you know, if you look at, for example, the late 19th, late 18th century French artist, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, she was perhaps one of the most successful portrait painters in Europe in the late 18th century, right? She was a French artist. She painted Marie Antoinette. She was one of her major, major artists. She went on to travel around the course of Europe and painted, painted portraits there. But she also wanted to present herself as feminine. So when we look at her, her self-portraits as, as an artist, we see her painting herself in a very feminine way. She's somewhat idealized. She's she's dressed in the very sensuous and sensual garb of the time, but she's holding an easel, showing that she was a professional artist. So she's both a woman, but she's a professional artist. So she's really negotiating the space. And she painted portraits, right? Portraits at that time were considered to be an appropriate subject matter for female artists to paint. So she works within this accepted sphere of the female artist at that time. And her portraits were somewhat very much like male artist, male portrait artists of the time. So she's not really painting in any different way, but she's painting in a place which was acceptable for her. And, you know, again, you can see the way that Mary Cassatt did this within the Impressionist art world. She painted, like many of the male artists, she painted the, you know, nightlife of Paris at this time. She painted the domestic sphere. And of course, we know her work has become especially connected to the domestic sphere. Her paintings of mothers and children are you know, famous, really. I mean, she's known for those works. They were certainly something, again, that distinguished her art, that made her stand out from her colleagues. This is not to say that Monet and Renoir didn't paint mothers and children, but Cassatt made that, you know, a a distinctive subject matter for her. And it was accepted that that's what she would paint because she was a female artist, right? Right. Um, and and at the same time, you know, 
within Cassatt's work, we see these moments, I don't know if we'd call them revolutionary, but really challenging subject matters, subject matters or her approaches to painting subjects that challenge certain stereotypes of women at the time. For example, when we look at her, some of her domestic scene paintings, we see a lot of mothers and children, but we also see women reading a lot, women reading books, women reading newspapers to really suggest that there's an intelligence, right, on the part of these women, that they're not just mothers, but they are intelligent beings. Or she, on occasion, would paint women out in the evening enjoying the urban sphere and urban entertainment. Women at this time were typically, especially respectable middle-class women, were not really seen to have a kind of agency. They were not seen to be a pro, it, the, the um, nightlife of Paris was not the kind of space that they should inhabit alone. So women of the middle and upper classes did not go out to the opera in Paris on their own, right? Right. But Cassatt painted women in those spaces on their own and independently. And there's this wonderful painting by her called At the Opera, where she's showing a woman at a loge in the Paris Opera House, not just out on her own, but she's got opera glasses. She's taking a very active role in looking at the world around her. She's an active looker. She's not a passive object, right? And so Cassatt, in very these very subtle ways, I think, challenge ideas about women's roles in society at that that time, while at the same time kind of working within certain accepted subjects for women at the, at the time. And yeah, we have, yeah, there are all sorts of these little moments of women challenging the way, accepted way that women are being represented. Um, the German post-impressionist artist, she, uh, Paula Modersen Becker. She painted the female nude, but she didn't paint it as this kind of sexual object. She painted it as a mother holding an infant child. So you have the female body presented as a reclining nude, not as a sexual object, but as a mother. So it kind of you know disrupts this idea of the male mm -hmm. game, right? And certainly feminist artists of the, you know, later, later 20th century and into the 21st century were more deliberate about their critique of, of gendered stereotypes. And you see that in artists like Alice Neal. Alice Neal is a 20th century, mid 20th century realist American artist. She just had a big retrospective exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum last year. And she really takes on a lot of these gendered stereotypes. Uh, one of this idealized, beautified, sensual male, female body, she painted herself. She did the self portrait when she was 80 years old. So you mm -hmm. see her. <laughs> and her scraggly gray hair and her misshapen, not really misshapen, but her old body right, with wrinkles right. and saggy flesh. And 
in that way, she really challenges these kind of brutally realistic representations of her own body that challenges a lot of the gendered stereotypes of the time. And, you know, I could go on. I mean, Cindy Sherman, who's a photographer in the late 20th century, she's still actually doing work now. But she did this whole series of photographs in the 70s and 80s that critiqued film stereotypes of women. So she and Neil and African-American artists like Faith Ringgold, these are, are artists who are revolutionaries. You know, the artists like Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Cassatt were making in some statements that challenged male artists and male stereotypes of the time. But feminist artists of more recent time, like Alice Neal and Cindy Sherman and Faith Ringgold, are very deliberate about their work and really advocating for an art that is, you know, that is a, a challenge to the status quo in the art world. That makes sense. I'm glad you brought up the feminist art movement because I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Can you give us some background into what the feminist art movement was and what its goals were? Sure. The feminist art movement is a somewhat recent art movement. It begins in the 19th, early 1970s in the United States. And then it, uh, you know, a parallel movement in, in Britain around the t- same time and then in other countries in Europe. Right now, we can really talk about a global feminist movement. So you have art, female artists all across the globe who are participating in feminist, making feminist art in the moment, our own cultural moment in the early 21st century. In and around 1970, when the feminist art movement begins in the United States, we can really see it as part of the women's movement, right, of the night of the 1960s, a larger social movement that was really interested in exposing gender disparities and inequities in American culture. Women who were involved in this, this movement in the 1960s were largely white middle-class women right, who were educated and and found themselves in the home, in suburban America, feeling really frustrated, right, about their position. So they began to really look at what was happening in American culture, the position of women in American culture at this time. I mean, this predated the period of abortion rights, even some, you know, financial rights that women didn't have at this time that now has been changed. And so women really became activists and working towards equal rights in American society. And this movement really had an effect on women writers at the time and women artists. And so female artists began to ask similar questions about the art world, right? Was the art world an equal playing field? Were male and female artists equal partners, in a sense, in this endeavor of making art at the time. Um, So what happened is that, you know, female artists started organizing and talking. They started doing research and found, for example, in 19, around 1970, 72, 
they did a study that showed that only 18% of galleries across the United States showed women artists. Only 18%. And this is at a time when there were 60% of students enrolled in art schools were female. 50% of professional artists were women. So, you know, that raised a lot of questions, like what was happening, you know, between, you know, you had 60% of students in art school that were women. And then by the time, you know, they're exhibiting work, only 18% of galleries across the nation were exhibiting their paintings or sculpture, right? So mm -hmm. fem feminist artists organized, they began to challenge the established art world, asking questions about not just galleries and museum representation of women and women artists, but also how educational institutions were structured, how to even teaching art history might be, you know, be shaped by gender assumptions, gendered assumptions, right? And so there was a lot of interest in, un, you know, really unpacking and exposing what some of these assumptions about gender might be. They were asking questions, for example, why were male abstract artists of the 1960s and 70s so celebrated? Artists like Frank Stella, whose paint, abstract paintings were just, you know, abstract shapes, patterns, mm -hmm. decorations, right? Right. And and so their works are being celebrated. And then you have this whole history of women quilt makers, right? Who mm -hmm. were doing a similar kind of thing, right? They were right. taking patterns and making these abstract constructions. Why weren't their works being equally valued? So those were the kinds of questions, right? That, that female artists, feminist artists of the time began to ask about the art world. In the early 1970s, you begin to see the emergence of feminist art programs in California, especially two of the leading feminist artists, Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro, established these studio feminist studio art programs in California. And they were really trying to you know, cultivate a generation of art, female art students who were more aware of some of these gender inequities, not just in the art world, but in society as well, to also try to give them a sense of power and agency when they became artists. So this was a very successful, although somewhat short-lived program, and so many feminist artists emerged out of these, these studio art programs. Mm -hmm. And I would say, too, that there was a really close affiliation between feminist artists of the time and feminist art historians. So an important part of the feminist art movement was the creation of a history of women's art, right? Um, so you have important art historians like Linda Nochlin and Griselda Pollock, who worked to recover the history of women's art from the past. In 1970, I think 
you know, maybe Mary Cassatt might be part of a history of of art class, a history of Western mm-hmm. art. Maybe Georgia O'Keeffe might be included in that. But by and large, you know, that was it. There wasn't a lot of attention to who these female artists of the past might have been. So one of the big projects of the feminist art movement was this recovery of female artists from the past. And, you know, you had Linda Nochlin, who is a very important feminist art historian, and she wrote an essay in 1971 called Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? And Mm -hmm. um, she really, you know, grapples with the whole idea of the great artist. What constitutes a great artist? And she really argued in that essay that it kind of stacked the decks against women, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that that she argues in this essay that, that it was, you know, the social and artistic context and education of women and men that accounted for some of these differences. That women, for example, in the 18th, 19th century were excluded from studying the live model in art school, right? Mm -hmm. And this had a real effect on female artists because if you're not studying the live human body, right, in art school, and what was considered to be great art at the time depended on representing human bodies, right? Right. <laughs> and you were put at a great disadvantage. So, you know, Nochlin really exposes some of these social and gender differences in the teaching of art to talk about the way that, you know, great art, I think she says something like, you know, great artists were not, you know, just didn't exist. They were made. They were cultivated. Mm -hmm. They were educated. It's not just something intuitive. And if you are excluded from those opportunities for education, then you aren't going to produce so-called great art. Thank you so much, Dr. Cassidy and Kate. We highly recommend checking out Dr. Cassidy's book, Painting the Musical City, Jazz and Cultural Identity in American Art, 1910 to 1940. A link to learn more is in the episode description. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We greatly appreciate your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Then Again. You can follow the Northeast Georgia History Center on Facebook and Instagram, and check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of great programs. Thanks, y'all, and see you next week for another episode of Then Again.